Thank you, musicians and worship leaders and MCs and announcement people. Um, there's a lot that goes in into tonight. Um, just thinking about all that stuff. So um, remember those people. They're they're trying to serve you, trying to um, help our group be a group and uh, to function and and have things to do and all that sort of thing. So we're excited about next week. This right here, music and lyrics. So you should come out. And there's flyers. There's little pieces of paper. Hold those up, Tiffany, back there. Um, there's little pieces of paper that advertise music and lyrics. So you should take a few of those, invite some people. We can fill this room up. And uh, there's going to be snacks and everything as well. And it'll be a good kind of thing before, you know, finals week and all that kind of stuff starts. So anyway, hope you can come out to that. Uh, we've been going through Mark, the Gospel of Mark, all semester. And tonight we're in Mark 14. Obviously, we haven't gone through every single passage of Mark. We'd, we'd be here a lot longer. Um, but tonight we're looking at a passage dealing with worship. Something that we just did. But it's, you know, worship is more than what you do just on Sundays or at RUF, just in an hour or whatever. Uh, worship is really what we do with our whole lives. It's, uh, it's really offering up everything you do, your work, your leisure, your entertainment, uh, your thought life, um, everything you do to God as an offering. It's giving your whole life uh, to Jesus. And so we're going to look at a passage in Mark chapter 14. It's up there, if I can find it right here. Um, I'm going to read it. Uh, but, you know, God has made us in His image and He's created us to worship Him. Uh, it's, it's as if we have, one theologian said, God-shaped vacuums in our lives. We have God-shaped holes in our heart. And uh, what we tend to do because of sin, because of our sin nature, because of going against God all the way back in the Garden of Eden, we tend to put other stuff in there. And, uh, and when we do that, when we worship other things other than God, uh, it might go well for a little while, but all of a sudden it will actually turn on us and destroy us. It's kind of like your, ga- your engine is made for gasoline in your car. You realize this, right? Well, when you don't worship God who created you and knows you, it's almost like you instead put chocolate syrup in your gas tank. And uh, I don't think that's going to work too well. It's going to chug up and get really sticky and gummy and you'll probably ruin your entire car. And to some extent, when we don't worship God who made us, and we worship other things, other people, relationships, sports, whatever. That's kind of what happens. It chugs us up. It, it, it uh, gets us really sticky. And it ultimately can destroy us. So tonight, we're going to look at this little story right before Jesus goes to the cross. A couple days before that. And uh, it's in Mark 14. So hear me as we read this passage. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Him by stealth and kill Him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while He was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as He was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? 
For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the Gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. The other day I was, uh, I was looking at um, something that Maryland fans hate. I was looking at this, uh, the tent village in Durham called Krzyzewskiville. Are you guys familiar with this? At the University at Duke. I shouldn't even be telling this, this uh, illustration. But uh, did you know that um, Duke basketball is obviously you know, something that all Maryland students should know about. It's, it's what we riot about if, if, if we beat them. Uh, but in Durham, next to Cameron Indoor Stadium, uh, there is what they call Kville, Krzyzewskiville. And there's a tent village there. And right after Christmas, basically tents start showing up right next to Cameron Indoor Stadium. And there's something like 1,500 students that camp out at Duke University in order to get in line to get tickets to get inside Cameron Stadium and become what they call the Cameron Crazies in order to root for their beloved Duke Blue Devils, who Maryland people, we, we hate. We don't like these people. Uh, we don't like this team. Okay, so, but anyway, uh, I was reading about this. Each tent holds about 8 to 12 students. Typically, uh, during the basketball season, there's something like 1,500 students that live in this tent village right there next to the stadium. So you're paying forty to $50,000 a year, and your kids go off to Duke, and they're living in a tent. Okay, uh, And uh, they have all kinds of stipulations. There's tent rotations. You have to have at least one or two people in your tent at all times. Um, around 2 or 3 a.m., they have a tent monitor that goes around and makes sure that people are there in the tent because if your tent is empty and nobody's there, back of the line. You go to the back of the tent line and you might not get into the game. Um, and so this is what they do. About three hours before the game, on a game day, the paint comes, the blue and white paint. And all of these Cameron crazies basically paint their faces and bodies uh, with blue and white paint. You've, you've seen them if you watched any of the games. And, uh, and I, I found this interesting. Um, Coach K comes out and addresses the tent village. He does it two times a year. You know who he does it for? UNC and Maryland. And Maryland. So they, see, we are a rival to them. They would deny it. <laughs> Anyway, but Coach K comes and addresses them before the Maryland game. Um, but, uh, and so I'm, I'm saying this illustration because uh, if you're like me, I, I am not a Duke fan, uh, but I respect them. And, uh, you know, there's something about sports that goes deep inside of me, and it might go deep inside of you if you're a sports fan, if you have a favorite team. And it's almost like you give yourself to that team. It's almost like, it's almost like it becomes an idol. And, uh, and like, I'm happy if my teams win, and I'm very sad for a few days if my team loses. You might have that experience as well. Um, it's interesting, 
you know, what has happened with, if you followed the news, the whole Penn State uh, issue, the, the sexual scandal that's happened there. Um, I have a friend who does RUF there at Penn State, and he said that during the week of that scandal, when news was being broken that um, there was, you know, a former coach who was uh, molesting young boys on the campus, uh, possibly there in the locker room and all these sorts of things, he said that basically the student body was like in mourning. Uh, that it was almost, he said that when he did large group, the, the week, he said it was like a funeral. Um, because students were so affected by the news of their campus and this terrible news, this terrible tragedy, but also that their identity, Penn State is all about what? It's all about football and Joe Paterno. And all of a sudden, like their idol or this, um, this person that they had looked up to and this organization and this brand, so to speak, had been totally turned around in their minds and they just couldn't get over it. Uh, they talked about it. There was a riot up there over the whole incident. Um, and uh, But it goes to show you that, you know what? Our hearts are made for worship. Our hearts are made to give themselves to something. And, uh, and so we do this. <laughs> we give ourselves to sports teams. As crazy as it sounds, we give ourselves to relationships. We give ourselves to people. We give ourselves to grades. We give ourselves to this career path that we have to have. If, have, to have. if I get that career, if I get that job then I'm going to be somebody. Um, these things become like that chocolate syrup that we put into our hearts. And uh, this is how powerful our hearts work. So these ideas, these things, these sports teams, these people, these relationships, all of this stuff uh, is what Paul says we have a worship disorder in Romans 1. And we, instead of worshiping and lifting up Jesus and having Jesus fill that God-shaped vacuum, we put a variety of other things in there. I'm talking about sports here, but it can be a variety of other things. And and so, we're going to see in this passage what really gives us hope, and that is, uh, what is, what is worship really all about? What is Christian worship really all about? And we see it in this passage. We see this woman who comes to Jesus and pours out this expensive nard, this alabaster flask upon Jesus. And we get a picture of what true worship is. And so simply we're going to look at this tonight. If you have your Bibles, uh, worship. You know, what it looks like. What's the action of worship all about? Uh, we're going to look at the hindrance, the hindrances of worship. And the last thing is what's the motive of worship? And so let's look at this. The, the first thing here is this. What does worship look like? What's the activity or action of worship? And so if you look at verse 3, you can read it up there. Uh, here it is. And while he, while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now what I find really interesting in this passage is that, you know, Jesus is reclining at table. He's eating. Back in the day, the tables were low and they would kind of lean on one arm and they would have their food and their feet would be out to the other side. And uh, this is just how, back in the day, they would, they would uh, eat together. So Jesus is at this home, Simon the leper, maybe a person that he had healed. Uh, and this woman came to him. And, and the first thing, really, the activity of worship is that this woman boldly comes into the presence of Jesus. She boldly comes in while he's eating and she breaks this jar and pours it over his head. 
And the people kind of are, they can't get over what she's doing. Uh, they're, they're, they're surprised about, by it. They question it. But she goes in and she interrupts and she doesn't really care. You know, the psalmist uh, says in, in Psalm 42, he says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? All over the Psalms, you have David just crying out for his God. He has to have God. That if he doesn't have God, he's going to just die. Do you have a heart like that? I know that often in my life, I don't have that kind of heart. I have a heart that's wanting to be filled with chocolate syrup. And the psalmist is saying, no, I've got to have God. When can I go and get God? When can I be filled with God? This is what the woman's doing. She's being filled with Jesus. You know, it's like a thirsty man in, stranded in the desert or a, uh, you know, the, he just has to have water to survive. This is how she looks at her relationship with Jesus. She's got to get to Jesus. She boldly enters. She boldly goes into that house. She boldly comes before Jesus and she doesn't care. She's got to get to Jesus. That's what worship is. That's the action of worship. It's saying, I need Jesus. Not just the benefits of Jesus. And I think this is what a lot of Christians look at. They say, hey, if I worship God, you're going to give me this. God, if I worship you and I give you my time and I go to church, etc., maybe you will get me that career. Maybe you will get me that relationship that I want. Maybe you will you know, get me uh, you know, whatever it is. You fill in the blank. We kind of use God thinking... That's what we need. The benefits of God. The psalmist and this woman is saying, no, I just need Jesus. I just need to be filled with God. That's enough. Is that who you are? Is that where you are? Another thing here is her worship is intimate. You know, she does this very private thing, so to speak, in public. Um, it's in front of other people. She doesn't care. She takes this jar of nard, this alabaster jar. She breaks it. And she pours it on his head. She touches his head with and pours out this ointment. This is a very costly perfume. It's almost as if she is doing something maybe she would only do in the privacy of her home, maybe with her husband. Now, this is not a sexual thing here, but she is pouring out. She's being intimate with Jesus. She's getting close to him. She's touching him with this perfume on his head in the middle of everybody. And I want to ask you, as you think about your worship with Jesus, is it intimate? Like, do you feel like you can just pour out your heart to God? Do you feel like you can just tell Him everything? That's the kind of relation, that's the kind of personal God we have. That's amazing. The God of the Bible is, is infinite, holy, wise. He's transcendent, but He's also intimate. He's also with us. That's what the whole incarnation is all about. This is what we're celebrating. Jesus coming, becoming flesh, communicating with us, saying this is who God is. This is what we're all about. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This intimate relationship, this personal relationship you can have. So, I want to ask you, are you intimate with God? Do you pour out your heart? Do you pour out all your problems? Do you pour out all of your sin? All of your struggles? He wants to know that. He knows it already. And he, he simply calls sinners to come. Come to me. Come to me. Tell me. This is amazing. There's no secrets. We can let our hair down, so to speak, with Jesus. We don't have to put on a front. 
Because He knows who we are. And when you, when you think about having a personal time with God, I would encourage you, let your hair down. This isn't about like some formal thing. Even like here at work, like when we're here at RUF, you shouldn't feel like, oh, this is a formal thing. If you want to raise your hands, if you want to say amen, I mean, <laughs> that, that's what this place is for. It's not, it's not to be, um, you know, stuck. And I'm not trying to force any kind of emotions as well, because you can do that. But you should have the freedom uh, to be intimate with Jesus. Um, the, the, the third thing here is, and this is probably the, the most important thing, is her, her worship is sacrificial. I mean, that's the biggest thing about this passage. Uh, she breaks this alabaster flask of pure nard and says it's very costly. And uh, we know that nard came from the, some plant in the Himalayas. It was very expensive. In fact, they say, hey, she should have sold this for 300 denarii. How much is that? Well, that's basically 300 days of labor for, or for a laborer, 300 days of work. So almost a full year. So maybe if you made $40,000, you know, maybe that was 35. I don't know. 33, maybe. I don't know. The point is, is this was costly. And uh, they believed that these women, it's almost like their rainy day fund. They would have this nard as almost like their security, their future. You know, if something went wrong or if there was some problem in her life, she had the nard she could sell in order to, to, to get out of the trouble she was in. And so here's what she do, she's doing. She's pouring that out in one, you know, quick dump onto Jesus' head. She's, she's giving everything to Him. She's giving her future. She's giving her rainy day fun. She's giving it all to Him. That's what worship is. It's sacrifice. Worship is a sacrifice of your time. It's, it's sacrifice of your priorities. Uh, it's saying, no, I need to take time out of my schedule and give God His due. I need to give Him praise. I need to worship Him. I need to personally worship Him each day. Um, you know, it means, it means you need to be committed to church. I know it's college. I know it's everybody else is sleeping in on Sunday. But worship is like getting out of bed and like saying, guess what? I'm going to go praise Jesus. What if we had a tent village outside of church? You know, because we just couldn't wait to get in there and praise Jesus. I mean, to some extent, that's what we should have. <laughs> you know, I mean, we should just be excited to go there and worship. Wherever you go, whatever church you're a part of, go and worship. Give your heart sacrifice. Um, so that's what that's what worship looks like. That's the act, activity. What's the battle? What's the hindrances? And worship and hindrances are uh, there's so many hindrances to worship. Uh, there's so many things. I mean, a lot of you guys are sacrificing right now, and I really appreciate it. You're here not studying. You're here um, taking a break from your studies, uh, and you're and you're thinking about the Lord. I mean, that's an amazing thing. I feel very privileged to be here uh, with you. Um, but, you know, if we're honest, worship is hard. Sometimes it's really mundane. Sometimes these songs we sing, like, what are they singing up there? Sometimes, I mean, you know, sometimes things could be boring. You know, I'm boring. The pastor's boring. You go to church, you don't understand what's going on. Um, you know, it can just feel very mundane. You know, praying, you know, your mind is wandering. It's hard to concentrate. Um, you know, there must be some more important things to do. I mean, we have... Just such busy schedules, all these things, our homework. It's really easy for our minds to be distracted during worship. 
You know, there's a million different things that can go on. And uh, we see some of them here, but I think the biggest thing we see here is, is pride. What's the biggest hindrance of worship? It's pride. It's self-righteousness. It's saying, I don't really need to worship because I'm okay. I really don't need to give that much to Jesus because there's better things we can do. And that's what we have here. And we see that with... These are the disciples, by the way, that are reclining with Jesus. That's what other passages talk about. These are the disciples. These are the guys with Jesus. And they see this act of worship in front of them. And what do they say? Hey, this is like too much. Uh, And they critique it. Self-righteous worship looks like critiquing worship. Okay, Self-righteous worship is saying, there's got to be a better way. And uh, Jesus, we're not going to do that. And so what do they say here? There were some who said to themselves, verse 4, that indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Okay, uh, They're criticizing her. They're saying, hey, we have the right answers, Jesus. This woman is doing a little bit too much here. I don't think that's necessary. And, uh, and so they're really trying to stop this. She's just too fanatical about Jesus. Uh, they are very uncomfortable about it. And so, um, you know, think about this in your own life and in my own life. Do we judge other believers? Do we judge other denominations? Do we judge other groups? Jesus is saying that's, that's not right. That's self-righteousness. Uh, true worship is, is encouraging the worship of Jesus, even when it might not be the way we do it. Uh, ultimately, you know, self-righteousness kills worship because it doesn't lift up Jesus. It lifts up self. And it pulls Jesus down. Indignantly is the word that's used here. I looked up Merriam-Webster's dictionary. It means feeling or showing anger because of something unjust or unworthy. They're feeling anger. They're showing anger because they think something is unjust or unworthy. What do they think is the unworthy action? You're giving too much. You're breaking this expensive nard on Jesus. Jesus isn't worth that much. Ultimately, is what they're saying. This is too costly. They're pulling Jesus down. Self-righteousness blocks worship because it pulls Jesus down. And it ultimately says this. It ultimately says, I've got it all together. I don't really need Jesus because I'm really not that bad. And this goes back to this idea of like seeing your sin. If you don't see your sin, if you don't see that you're self-righteous then there's no need to see Jesus. Jesus isn't going to be that big because you're, you're okay yourself. you got it all figured out. You know that that should have been sold to the poor. And you, maybe serving the poor is what you're giving your, your life to. And that's good. But there's this other thing that Jesus is saying here. He's saying the worship of me is, is priority one. It's saying, love me. I'm the one who made you. I'm the one who created you. And so I want to be clear, it's not that Jesus is not saying, hey, don't worry about the poor in this passage, because some people have interpreted it that way. (laughs) 
Because, I mean, look at Jesus' life. His whole life is about restoring the poor. His whole life is healing the sick, the blind, the lame. He's helping people. He's going to restore this whole creation. That's ultimately what He's about. Everything that's broken is going to become put back together. But He's saying right here, right now, those guys are trying to make that issue why they blame the woman. He's saying, no, you need to worship Me. Because if you worship Me and you understand who I am, you will serve the poor. You, you won't be able to help it. You'll, you'll be so full of His love and His grace that you'll want to serve people. You'll want to help people. But it comes from understanding who He is. And so, there's hindrances to worship, but they're mainly self-righteousness. It's mainly about saying, I don't really need Jesus that much because I'm not that big of a sinner. The freedom of the Gospel says, no, I am a big sinner. And you can just admit it and own up to it. I say, yes, I'm self-righteous. But guess what? Jesus loves sinners. Even self-righteous disciples okay, who were religious, who had it all together. Jesus loves them. Just like He loves this woman. Just like He loves you. And He calls you, you know, to drop your pride, drop your self-righteousness, and come to Him. And really, this is, this is the last thing. And... Um, the mode of a worship. Like, how can we stir our hearts up to worship Jesus if they feel dead? And I think the way we do that is we have to be touched by His grace. And we know that there's a parallel passage to this passage in Mark in John chapter 12. And uh, we know that, guess who this woman is? It's Mary. Not His mother, but Mary, the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus. Okay, you you might remember they were good friends with Jesus. Um, Lazarus was dead, and Jesus raised him from the dead. Uh, Jesus spent time at their home a lot, and there was the one story remember where Martha was in the kitchen working really hard, and Mary, where was Mary? Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him and absorbing the word. Mary has been touched by grace. Why does she worship? She understands the gospel, the good news, and that good news that gospel is mentioned in this story. Wherever the gospel is preached, this story will be told. Mary understood that she was a big sinner, and she needed the grace of Jesus. And she sat at Jesus' feet. She was like a sponge, and she soaked it in. She was touched by that. That's why she worships because she understood who Jesus was, and she understood who she was. She understood she was a sinner, and she needed the word of God. She needed. Jesus and His ultimate death because what is she doing? She's coming to anoint Him for His burial. She understood the purpose. It's Passover week. It's two days before the cross. And Jesus had been talking all through Mark about His coming death. He's going to Jerusalem. I'm going there. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be put on a cross. I'm going to die. and I'm going to rise again. He was telling this story again and again and again in Mark. And here Mary is. She understands. She comes in. She pours the nard out. It's an ointment. And Jesus says this, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the Gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. She understood it. She understood the Gospel. She understood... That she needed Jesus. She needed His death and resurrection for herself to forgive her sins and to cleanse her. And she needed to be put back right with worship. She understood that she was had a worship disorder too, just like all of us do. 
Probably wasn't the Duke Blue Devils. Probably wasn't the Maryland Terrapins or the Ravens or the Redskins or whoever else. Who knows what it was? But she had a worship disorder and she found that Jesus healed that. And she became her all in all, so to speak. And so she gives everything. So the motive of true worship is simply this, the good news of the Gospel. That Jesus came to love sinners and to die for sinners so that we could have life. That's why she was so excited. Um, in this year of, of Christmas carols, I was looking at a little story about Handel's Messiah. And uh, this is from the Internet. I don't know if it's totally true. Uh, and so those in here that have had music history, you might correct this. But here's the story that I saw, which I, I felt was pretty fascinating. If, if those of you that don't know, Handel's Messiah, written by Frederick Handel, um, Back in around 1741, the story was is that he was a, a, he was a despairing person. Uh, he was a composer, but he was struggling to earn a living in London, and uh, he basically was poor. There were some days where he couldn't afford meals, and one night in 1741, he was depressed, he was defeated, and he was basically just wandering the streets of London uh, all night. He comes back to his little room. And uh, goes to bed, but he noticed on the table there was an envelope, envelope from his friend, a guy by the name of Charles Jenin, who, and I'm not going to pronounce this right, Libretos, Libretos, Libretos. He would write the words to some of his um, compositions, and uh, he had written on in this envelope all of these passages from the Book of Isaiah. Okay, in the, in the Bible. Isaiah who was prophesying about a Messiah who was to come. And uh, so, Handel like, looks and reads these. He crawls into bed, but he can't stop thinking about these passages. He can't stop thinking about Isaiah and the promise of a Messiah. And, and so, these words kept going through his mind. He couldn't sleep. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. For unto us a child is born. Glory to God in the highest. Hallelujah, hallelujah. So he keeps reading these verses and thinking about them in his mind. He can't sleep. He can't sleep. He gets up, goes to his piano, and he begins to write Handel's Messiah. He begins to bang out the notes on his piano and put these phrases into music. And uh, night and day for three weeks he wrote Handel's Messiah there in that little room. And he forgot sleep, food, rest. He was just in a zone, uh, writing Handel's Messiah. He refused to see anyone. At last, on the day the work was finished, one friend managed to gain entrance. And here's what he said. The composer was at his piano, sheets of music strewn around him, tears streaming down his face. And the quote is, I do believe I've seen all of heaven before me and the great God Himself, he, ex- he exclaimed. What was going on there? He was worshiping God. He had a vision of Jesus, the Messiah, from Isaiah. The one who was going to comfort him in his distress. Comfort him from his sin. That's what brought about that piece of music. I hope that's true. It was from the internet. Uh, if not, it's a great story. But uh, he, was, he was comforted by the Word and thus he produced this incredible piece of, of worship, this music. And so are you worshiping the Lord? Not, not necessarily like Handel's Messiah. Maybe there are some people that can do something like that. But in all of your life, in whatever you do, whether it's engineering, whether it's business, whether it's you know, teaching, whatever it is, like, are you 
giving your life to Jesus and worshiping Him because of what He's done. Let me pray. Father, thanks for tonight. Thank You that we can just um, think about Your Word for a little while and and uh, think about the Gospel, the good news that Jesus came for sinners. I pray that You would uh, make that really stick into our hearts and that we might know You, uh, the God of all comfort, and give You praise and worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, we're going to stand and sing another song to close.